Welcome back to the Zeitcast, y'all. If you've been around this podcast for any amount of time, if you've been around me for any amount of time, do you need an introduction to Dr. Chris Green? Probably not. Might you need an introduction to his new book, Being Transfigured, Lenten Homilies? You might. You just might need an introduction to that because it's pretty new. And it's gorgeous. Uh, it's not very long. It's brief in a wonderfully accessible way, but the sentences are so meaty. And as it is, whenever Chris takes you into a text, it will take you some places on this Lenten journey. So I hope you will read it. Hope you'll join me in reading it. I've already got a bunch of copies. Sent one to my mom. I got a bunch of copies for uh, here at DePaul for friends around the Center for Spiritual Life because it's such a great guide for this season. I want to get right in this conversation that happened out of my living room. We'll say briefly, I'm so grateful um, for wherever and however you're joining us on this journey. Uh, those of you who give on Patreon, those of you who consider that because this podcast is speaking to you in some way, liking, subscribing, commenting, all the things, all so meaningful to us. Uh, but whatever you do or don't do with any of that, please jump into this because it's rich. And I do think these things will really shape your soul. I know they're shaping mine. The general contours of the Lenten season in terms of the big arc of the story are maybe set in some general ways. And yet there's so many surprises, right? I know I'm still getting surprised right now. Hope you're still open to surprise. And I hope you're uh, open to this conversation with Dr. Chris Green, because it's a great one. Let's go. Experimenting right now. First of all, I am in my home in Edmond, Oklahoma. Uh, kind of, well, very much sad circumstances. So Nicole's grandmother passed away and we're here for the funeral yesterday, uh, which is very sweet, very sacred time. Um, not only was that really important, but one of the great things that's, that's come out of this is that one of my best friends in the world, Dr. Chris Green, preaching in Oklahoma City tomorrow morning, which meant we get to hang out and do this. Yeah. Chris, welcome. I'm so happy that you're here. Glad to be here. So I'm not quite sure, how to, Chris, how to handle this introduction because for anybody who's followed me for any amount of time at all, uh, who's listening to podcasts and those things, then f for them, they're like, Chris Green is a legend. Chris is a legend. Like, they, they love you. They all know who you are. But especially for my friends at um, the DePaul, through the Spiritual Life Center, and one of the things I'm excited about um, Mild spoiler alert, because we haven't made much of this on campus yet. We're getting ready to start Christian Chapel for the first time. Uh, Non-mandatory, of course, but it's going to be Wednesdays at noon. And I love that that's getting off the ground the same time, roughly, that Lent starts. Cool. And so I thought, since you have a new book out on Lent, uh, so by way of proper introduction, uh, Chris E.W. Green is Professor of Public Theology at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida and director for St. Anthony Institute for Theology, Philosophy, and Liturgies in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I already mentioned one of my very best friends in the world. We've lived a lot of life and done a whole lot of things together. Absolutely. Do you remember, I think about this a lot. A lot of folks will know our world. I'll, I'll try to be a little careful about inside baseball. 
But I love that a friend from my former uh, church in Charlotte who said one time that he got kind of an image of us and preaching of like being like John and Charles Wesley. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. It is, yeah. And it does feel like whatever it is that's kind of uh, in each of us, uh, I mean, I know nobody nourishes my soul like getting to be with you. And so it's always special to get to just to hang out and have the kind of time that we're having. But uh, Chris just put out brand new book, Being Transfigured, Linton homilies, I feel like this is almost understatement because I knew this would be the case. First of all, Chris, um, and I think it's a little funny that we care as much as we do about things like Lent and Advent. That's probably worth the conversation because suffice it to say, we did not grow up <laughs> with any of this. Absolutely. And this has not been a rhythm, really, no. historically. But uh, I have rarely found resources for Lent, Advent, kind of... Uh, church and church calendar that I really love. So immediately, and I think that almost feels like damn faint praise because uh, I go further than this, but it's immediately the best book on Lent. I'm, I'm like, okay, everybody who I know who cares about Lent at all has to read this book. Um, but I, I feel like it's, it's, it's more than that too. You're such a wonderful preacher. And one of the things it's funny, Chris, after knowing you for all this time that I still like geek out about um, in print and in sermons is I, I was, Maybe it's midway through the first chapter. Whenever you start with like your very Chris Green riffs on scripture, because you are the best like reader of scripture. I I tell my friends truly, and I uh, none of this is like I don't say the same things about everybody. I said last week at Paul, I mean this, that Otis Moss III, I think is the best preacher in America. Uh, I just so happen to be in proximity with people that I really think are the best in the world that what they do. I tell them all the time about Chris the best theological thinker that I know. Uh, that's true. I really do think like you're the best theological thinker that I know. And every time like you visit a text creatively, I always feel like it alters my understanding to where I'm not able to see that text the same way again. And you do that over and over again here. So thank you for this book. Oh, absolutely. It's such a gift. Well, and as I've told you, I don't think it would have happened if you hadn't connected me with Bradley. Mm. Brad Jerzak. I mean, that he's the one who essentially shepherded me through finishing the book and encouraging me that I could do it and get it done, get it done in time for, for Lent this year. And so thank you for that's that, awesome. that connection. Uh, didn't you say like we did that conversation together? Yes. It was in incredible. I, I shared it with Brad. Dr. Dr. Brad Zerzak. So that was the, it's weird because I feel like now we, a lot has happened in the last couple of years, but that was the first time we all talked. Cause I remember thinking, you and Brad just need to be friends on so many levels. But David Bentley Hart's new book had just came out. That all you had, you had actually done a recording with him too. Yes, I just which by the way, <laughs> most most intimidating podcast experience I ever had was interviewing David Bentley Hart. If you don't know this, uh, the great Orthodox uh, theologian of our time, and also the person I would most be scared of being insolent about. Would you want to get an argument with David? Bentley? I mean, I wouldn't want to, but, you know, he did come back at me in my review of him. Oh, and he it was did. kind of worth it, right? I, so um, in my review in print, I had said that I'm worried that he's going to be a caricature of himself. Oh, yeah. Thinking okay. Right, right, right. But he did. Really yeah, 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 yeah. But he came back and his response was great. He was like, oh, that's that's too bad. I was I was ho ho hoping that I could be a caricature, caricature of H.L. Mencken. Oh, right. Yes, yes. Old school caricatured figure already, which is a great comment. Yeah. Let you know a lot about Hart's sense of humor. Yes. So thankfully, he did not like tear into me too, too terribly. Very funny. He's but great. it is funny that he's in the comments. 
Oh, the dead belly heart <laughs> is in the YouTube comments. Yes, exactly. That's that's extraordinary. It is. It really is. He's he's very home life. <laughs> yeah, he, he is. is. He is. Which I should say on that front, uh, when this came up the other day, uh, because I mean, how many conversations like this have we done together, different meetings and formats? I still think it's a little funny because you talk about niche. Okay, so this is me and you and Brad reviewing a highly theological book by David Billy Hart that is not accessible, like whatever. Far and away, the most watched thing I've ever put on YouTube was that conversation. Man. But I do think, you know... We're, we're talking about hell. We're talking about hell. That's it. Everyone's talking about hell. So if you want to know what we think about hell, it's all about hell. about hell. Maybe that'll, that'll be good. You should. <laughs> Boy, I would read those. I don't mean to just jump into the deep end here, but actually, Chris, because I feel like it's like you're very... Um, I wouldn't want to say measured. Uh, that's maybe you can be, but that's not what I think. Uh, I think usually with how you express them theologically, you're artful. You will say things in an artful way. And so I thought one of the like most Quentin Tarantino theology statements I've ever heard you make. Because we're having this conversation, we're doing it in our sort of in the way that we do. And Chris says like the idea of hell as eternal conscious torment should be deemed. It's heresy. Absolutely. And I was like, okay, shots fired from Chris Green, who just said eternal yeah. conscious torment is heresy. So if y'all want to know more about that, that conversation is all there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was provocative, Chris. I stand by it. Yeah, I, th- I still think that's a, that's a, I'm with David Hart on that. I mean, I think yeah. it's a horribly wicked idea. Like, whatever you think about judgment and sin and the will of God, there's room there for conversation. Yeah. But the idea that God subjects people, his, his people, his children, to eternal conscious torment. I mean, there's nothing more wicked than that. Yeah. I always, uh, I think so much about Rich wrote this great line. I actually heard him say at a conference, and boy, that has hung with me, and I've quoted a lot, that if you still believe in eternal conscious torment, then you don't have a benevolent God, you don't have a, a benevolent universe. It's like if the idea is that m- the vast ma- majority of people are headed towards endless conscious torment, yeah. then like, no, uh, which... Maybe I'll keep that for a little later because I really do love, since Lynn is so connected with ideas about sin and repentance, yeah. the way you talk about sin later in the book, uh, I feel like it's so, is is incredible, incredibly helpful. But I guess a, a good place to start, by the way, are, since I'm not able to see comments, are, are folks watching? Are people out there? Hi, everybody. Uh, we're so happy. Hopefully to- Brad Jerks. Hopefully Brad. If not, we'll get this <laughs> Yeah, yes. <laughs> he's, he's in the comments. He's serving tonight. Like, wait to see. Like, who, who who's talking about DBH tonight? That's amazing. <laughs> um, probably it would be a great first question on this, since Chris and I come from a very Pentecostal background, very similar Pentecostal background. So, what would lead you to write a book about Lent to preach sermons? Homilies on that mm-hmm. to begin with. Where, where did this originate? I mean, it's one of those, I would say it's probably 15 years ago or so, I started to be drawn toward the liturgical and the sacramental. You know, my PhD work was on the Lord's Supper and the Pentecostal tradition. So I think as a pastor, even then, mm-hmm. I was drawn toward kind of at least staying in earshot of the seasons. Right? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't preaching from the lectionary yet. Sure. I wasn't truly at the center of the liturgical traditions yet, but I had a sense for it's helpful to think in those ways, you know? Mm-hmm. And actually I think 
I was in some of those emergent church conversations that Ryan McLaren and Tony yeah. Jones were having, and they were resourcing some of that, right? That it would help kind of fill out your Protestant spirituality mm. if you had a sense of liturgical tradition. So I think I probably first kind of came aware of it in that way, like as mm. a young pastor doing doctoral work, getting a feel for new new ways of, you know, what I love about my tradition, right, is the is the fire of it, the heat mm-hmm. of it, the spontaneity of it. But of course, it wasn't particularly good at some of the slower the rhythms of life. Sure. And, you know, the, its its strengths were also its weaknesses, and there were enormous gaps, at least in my formation. Yeah. So I think I was drawn to it for, for those reasons. And then eventually, I became part of liturgical tradition. So we're preaching from the lectionary, mm-hmm. following the church calendar. And the the more I gave myself to it, the more I came to see the wisdom of it. Right? Yeah. There's a reason Christians have been attending to these seasons for millennia now. Yeah. Know? Like it, there's a, there is a real wisdom to letting yourself be led through different times and seasons of the year. Mm-hmm. And, but we, we essentially, the, the people that I grew up with, we wanted it to always be Pentecost. You know, and there's that line in mm-hmm. the Narnia, right, about it's always winter, never Christmas. Yeah, yeah. Like, we, yeah. we wanted it to always be Pentecost, never Good Friday, never, yeah. never Lent, never Advent. You know, mm-hmm. everything was always here now in fullness. And and that's just not how life is. That's not how God works. Mm-hmm. So I think, really, I would say that, to me, is the baseline. The baseline is our lives are seasonal. Yes. And our spirituality should reflect the truth of that. God's yeah. work in our life is yeah. fitted to, you know, our times are in his hands. Mm. And I, I would think that for me would be, yeah, the, the baseline of why we need mm-hmm. seasons like this. I think we were both, I don't want to speak for you, but I think we were both drawn towards these rhythms that we didn't have. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to be the, to be rooted and connected in a way uh, and, and I know that there are certainly exceptions to this, but I do find, generally speaking, like for us coming from this wilder world of kind of Pentecostal charismatic spirituality, I feel like so many of my favorite things I've ever heard anybody say about that world have been from people outside the tradition. That's right. Yeah. And I think in the same dire- in the same way that when someone like you approaches Lent and you aren't overly familiar with it. Right. Yeah, it opens up all kinds of different creative possibilities because you're not presuming that you already know what this season is supposed to mean. Uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I think there's there's something creative, right? Right at the, at the kind of mashup of, you know, Pentecostal becoming liturgical or a Catholic yes. becoming charismatic. Like there's a, I think there's real, there's life there. Well, and uh, Chris also wrote a wonderful book called Surprised by God. And I, I, that's one of the things I love about your work in general is I feel like it's kind of like this has become something I've um, I think maybe I actually think about theology in general is that if you're talking about God, how sad is it if there's not a sense of surprise? And I love that, that with you, I feel like there's never a sense that you're starting with a particular conclusion in mind and you're kind of letting the thing take you wherever it needs to take you. Yeah. One of the things I've become really convinced of, and this has a lot to do with Robert Jensen, Mm -hmm. you know, it was a major influence for me is that, Really, this is what makes life with God, the life God has made for us, worth living, is that it's filled with surprises. Yeah. These are my words, not his, but I learned it from him, if you know what I mean. That life, our, our limits, our brokenness, the way the world works, means that we can be taken aback. Yeah. But only goodness can surprise us. Mm. Right? So lots of things can take us off guard, but right. only good things truly surprise us. And God surprises God. 
Mm-hmm. Right, right. Precisely because God is infinite. Mm-hmm. God's life is not static. And this, again, these are Jensen's words, right? What makes God a living God is that he can surprise you. Wow. Yeah. What makes God is a living God is that God surprises God. Mm-hmm. And we get caught up in that, I think. And so that's to me where the, the that's what's best about the Pentecostalism we knew is that there was a sense yes. of that's right. openness to the surprise of God. Yeah. Now, sometimes... We were predetermined. We were predetermining what that surprise could look like. Sure. <laughs> we weren't really wide open to surprise. Right. But I do think that that's right and good. That sense of yeah. God is a living God, a speaking, acting, present God, a God who moves and is on the move. And we, we should, we can and should find joy, right? Like mm. Delight in that. Is it, I think that's Christian Wyman and my writer best who talks about God is possibility. Yeah. Which I feel like is at best. Yes, that's what our tradition brings. Is that God is God is possibility. Yeah, um, I, I'm so eager to get to the book, but I realize knowing people are coming from all different kinds of places, it might be a helpful thing to at least ask before we go. We wait in further. What is Lent, Chris Green? What is Lent? Yeah. So it's it's a season of preparation for Holy Week. I mean, we liturgically, you know, we begin the year in Advent, looking forward to Christmas. Christmas Christ comes, and then after we've spent 12 days with with this, we move into the season of Epiphany, where the revelation comes of who this child is who's been born to us. And we carry through Epiphany to Ash Wednesday, which marks the opening of Lent, right? And we, we all know Ash Wednesday as, as that moment in which we attune ourselves again to our mortality, mm-hmm. to the fact that we shall die, right? Yeah. But to do it Christianly means we're not just attuning ourselves to our mortality, but to God's mortality. Mm. And part of what's astounding about that, right, is we, we've just had the epiphany, this is God in the flesh. Right. But we're about to have the epiphany that this God is going to die, mm. that our God is going to be nailed to a cross in a, in a moment of God forsakenness and is going to be buried. Mm. And so Lent is, I think, in some ways, a, a, it's a it's a chamber to prepare yourself for that change. Mm-hmm. We're, we're moving. It, it's 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 you can't move too quickly from yeah. Epiphany to Good Friday. Mm-hmm. And I, I think Lent is preparation. It's soul preparation for confronting the death of our God and in the rising, which is the surprise mm-hmm. that you can't see coming. You know, maybe we'll get to this, and or maybe not. So much of our preaching takes that surprise away, right? Yes, yes. But the truth is, I think if we attend to the year rightly and to the gospel, the year is witnessing to. Yeah, resurrection is a surprise. Yeah, yeah. I love that idea of a, of a preparation chamber. Um, I'm going to say to this way because, like, stuff that we've talked about before that you know, but like, man, I can't think about the surprise and not think about. I know we talked about this, but. I think that was Bishop Noel Jones yeah, yeah, absolutely. doing that seminar, which was very much black church with Bishop Jakes on preaching. I mean, I think about this all the time about preaching. Uh, me too. But I think about it, about all theological work. He talks about how when he was a kid growing up in the 60s, how he and his family, The Fugitive, before it was the Harrison Ford, Tommy Lee Jones movie, uh, was a series. And how every week him and his family would get around the TV and they were, you know, edge of their seat. Which the whole premise of The Fugitive, Dr. Richard Kimball... Uh, accused of killing his wife. He's on the run. And he said, now, you know, we all knew how the fusion was going to end every week because Dr. Richard Kimball was always going to get away. Uh, 
but you know, we were just enraptured, like waiting to see the next thing, what's, what's going to happen to Richard Kimball this week. And, you know, he says like, essentially in white preaching, I'm going to paraphrase, the white preaching is, you know, get up at the beginning of the sermon, you say, today I'm going to tell you these three things. And you tell the people the three things that then you're going to go on and tell them the next 45. Whereas he says in black preaching, um, which is how he describes the fugitive, the, every episode was how much trouble can Richard Kimball get into before he gets away? Yeah. And he's like, we try to see how much trouble we can get Jesus into before he gets away at the end. And I like, I just think it's such a powerful idea. Like, how much trouble can we get Jesus into? Wouldn't even talk about the mortality of God and Lent entering into that, not skipping to, well, hey, we all know this ends with Easter, absolutely. which I feel like is the cheat that just robs so much of the magic. It does. It absolutely. It is a cheat. I mean, I was. A couple of Christmases ago, I, I was home with my family. This man dropped by to see my father. And apparently my dad had told him, you know, I'm, that I was a theologian. So he said, hey, I have a theological question for you, which is always bad. Right. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's, well, in my experience, at least, like those questions always turn out to be. Right. This, this, this was his question. What was Jesus doing while he was dead? Ooh. <laughs> and I knew what he wanted me to say, right? Yeah. I mean, that whole sermon about... You know, while he was walking the corridors of hell. I mean, I wish Brother J.A. Barton <laughs> preached this for a while. But, I mean, all three of Getting the keys from the devil. Yes. Like, I was like, well, he wasn't doing anything. He was dead. Mm. <laughs> did you word, send that back to your dad? Did you, did you so my dad's that? as close to me as you are now. So uh, this friend of his is there and asked me this in front of my dad. Oh. And so I say... To the man, I was like, well, he wasn't doing anything. He was dead. That's what it means to be dead. You can't do anything. <laughs> and he looked at me and laughed, and I was like, oh, I'm serious. Mm. He's like, hmm. And he walked away. <laughs> because he walked away to lose faith, I'm sure. Because you don't know this, the sermons, like around Easter, are something like, while Jesus has been killed, like, he's walking through the, the jail and kicking every door open, like within who's liberating all the like all this promise heaven. And of course, like, he didn't do anything. He's dead. dead. <laughs> that's, that's what it means to be dead. He's dead to be dead with the dead. So he didn't have another question after that? <laughs> Oddly enough, he had enough for his Christmas theological learning. I mean, he, yeah, he, I, I'm sure he went somewhere to pray for me. I love that that was a conversation in there. <laughs> Okay, so hopefully not a conversation ender. One of the things now, and I, this is the fun part of what I get to do in conversations like this with you, is that um, not necessarily, even though probably good to follow big art questions of the book, there are so many passages here I love in particular that I thought, okay, I would really love to just throw them at you and let you go. Okay. Um, one of the things in the first half of the book I love the most um, what you do with this scene in the Gospels, this confrontation between Peter and Jesus, where Peter, uh, well, essentially rebukes Jesus, right? Reason the right. Because he says he's going to do the cross. Yeah. So I've definitely never heard anyone interpret this text the way you do here, because I think it's a troubling text in a way. And, and I've almost never heard a sermon that didn't trouble me. I think maybe in the wrong way. It's not a good way. Because um, we talk about we need to be troubled by Scripture and all that. But this idea that Jesus responds to Peter when Peter essentially says, no, this doesn't have to happen. You don't have to go to the cross, all that. Uh, Satan, get thee behind me. And which is often interpreted as, you know, Jesus is calling Peter Satan. Uh, it feels like a dig or an insult. Um you do something very different with this text here. Yes. Well, 
Well, precisely because I was troubled by that. Mm. I mean, I heard those same sermons. I'm sure I gave some of those same sermons at some point in my life. And it is to turn Jesus into so someone reactionary. Like in yeah. that moment, he's he's losing it, right? Lashing out at Peter for some some faith, as if Jesus himself is in peril because mm-hmm. or it's caught off guard by what Peter is doing. So it seemed to be that can't be what's happening. So what else might be? And and a couple of details in the text left out to me, right? One of them being, what if he's not calling Peter that name, but helping mm-hmm. Peter identify what's at what's at play here? So yeah. that the get behind me, Satan, is is a diagnosis for Peter. Yeah. Recognize what's happening here. It's not an accusation. I mean Satan's mm-hmm. the accuser, not Jesus. Mm. So I, I think I think Jesus can speak to us in ways that that tell us the truth, but he doesn't ever accuse to get that done. Yeah. Yeah. And we often, I think, fail right at that point. Mm. I love that. I love how you said that here. That would be, to, he does not love on accusation. Him. That would be to do the devil's work for him. And Jesus never does that. No, Jesus names for Peter what is happening in and through him so he can be free of it. And reminds Peter of his place as a disciple. Get behind me. Behind me. And to me, that that's what lit the text up. Is mm. Once I saw that, Jesus is not calling Peter a name. He's helping Peter name what's wrong. Yeah. yeah. He's giving him a name for what's wrong, mm. not calling him a name. Once I saw that, then the get behind me, that's that's where a disciple belongs. And then the stunning yeah. thing is the very next thing that happens in the text is Jesus turns mm. to talk to the disciples, which means he says, get behind me, and then he literally moves his body so that Peter's behind it. Wow. Wow. That he does the work for Peter, right? Mm-hmm. So he's here's the name you need. The yeah. stuff that's happening right here is satanic. Yeah, you need to be behind me. Here, I'll turn. Now you're behind me. Yeah, and I mean that that that's that strikes me as that's mm-hmm. the way the Jesus I know. Yes, yes. Say, that's that's the way he acts. And yeah, and I feel like you know these twists come a lot in how you deal with text, which again I certainly think are legitimate there. But how striking it is when we've often been read this in a way or, or read it in a way that's going, uh, so Peter says something stupid and Jesus' response is F off. Right. Smacks him down. Right. And instead this idea of like, no, like get behind me. It's like, no, like, and place this in there. It's like, he's doing this work. This is a place of safety. This is a place of protection. This is where he needs to be. Yeah. Uh, and instead of being done, you, there are a couple times that you make statements like this. And I mean, I was teary kind of through all of them. Because um, I think there are a couple of different versions of this in the book for you. Yes, God turns his back on us, but never to put us in our place, only ever to help us find us. That's such a great line. Yeah, yeah. that's powerful. But think about, I mean, th- that line is coming out of like the long experience of thinking it was the other thing. Yeah. Like yeah. I couldn't have written that line mm. without having had the experience of thinking God was trying to put me in our place. Right. Yeah. And learning, being surprised to find that's never what he's doing. He's mm. never putting me in my place. Yes. You know, it's like he's he's giving me a place. Yeah. He's making a place for me. Mm. And I mean that is that's that's why you can fall in love with God. I mean, that's why mm. I remain in love with God, right? Mm. Is that it's it's only ever good. And and all the better when I don't quite see how he's being good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's part of where I love the way you approach like Lynn in general is there's this idea um, for me, like a through line through everything that 
this has to be deeply experiential. It comes out of a deeply experiential place for you. This is reflecting on the God that we know, the God that can be known, that wants to be known. So it's not sort of an abstract rehearsing of the details of the story. This is, you know, this is a time to draw close yes. um, to, to this God that we know. But I, I love what you do there in terms of, um, you know, I mean, it's a few pages later, God turns his back on us and never puts us in our place, only ever to help us find it. And in the same spirit, um, the truth hurts us to be sure, but it never harms in fact, it hurts only because it reveals how we have been harmed. God humbles, but never humiliates us, never desires our shame. Yeah, I think that's the same, like that recognition that, you know, we have that saying, the truth hurts. Yeah. And I think that's right if you hear it this way. The truth hurts to show us how we've been harmed and to mm -hmm. heal that harm, right? Yes. And again, that's a line that comes right out of my, my story, you know, my experience of what I thought was happening who I thought I was, who I thought God was, and then realizing, no, like, mm. what's true is, is so much more beautiful and so much more healing, mm. life-giving than that. Yes. And that all God is ever doing for any of us is, is good and mm. the best possible good. Yes. It does seem like um, maybe what happens with a lot of us when we approach these texts, it's like, we don't have, most of us don't have a lot of, what basis would we have for that kind of relationship, mm. you know, where we've experienced truth that might hurt but not harm? Because in reality, I think what it is to be a human relationship is, of course, we harm each other. They harm each other in ways that are intended and unintended. So it, it becomes hard to conceive a relationship with one who is entirely and always love who truly never intends harm. Yeah, it might see, but only in a way that moved towards our healing. Mm. Yeah, but I, I do think there is something that with the people who've loved me well, mm. my parents, mentors, my wife, my kids, my friends, you, you can see there is at least a desire for that. Yeah. Yes. I don't yes. know that we can ever fully Absolutely. pull it off. But I do think we do meet people who want. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's enough to awaken the awareness that yeah. that, that want yeah. has a reality. Mm -hmm. that, that's what we're naming. We name God. Mm -hmm. but the, the, what is it in me that wants to love you in a way that's not possessive, that's not domineering, that's not exacting from you some kind of tax? Yeah. I mean, what is that in me? Yeah, I mean, we throw the word love around so much, it, it loses its weight. But that's what we're naming. Right. And God's love, right? I mean, yes. that's, yes. so I think some of this is, oddly enough, you know, there's there's that language at the beginning of Hebrews about Jesus being the imprint of God's being. Mm -hmm. And, of course, an imprint leaves the gap, right? Yeah. Leaves the emptiness. But that em emptiness is, is witness of a fullness. Mm -hmm. And I think in our day-to-day -day experiences, We've got to learn to read the emptinesses as a reflection of the fullness. Yeah. Like the, the, mm. What we cannot be for each other right. is something we're aware of because there is one who is that, that yeah. we can't be for each other. Yeah. And being open-handed about that, leaving room for that, I think is, mm. I mean, that's what maturity is about. Yeah. Recognizing we can't be all things to everyone. We mm. can't be everything to ourselves that we need to be. But we can come aware of of that which needs to be filled. And, yeah. and just that awareness, that awareness of our own emptiness is mm -hmm. testimony to there is one who does feel. Yes, yes.
It's just so helpful, though, because I feel like those categories, because I feel like a lot of us don't have that. There's a difference between a God who, well, sure, the way God loves us will humble us. But to be humbled is not to be humiliated. Or the way you say, uh, I, I love this line, God is ever graceful. He never resorts to disgracing us. The idea that, like, you know, that God does not disgrace. It's just, it's, it's wild how much even reading words like that to me now feel as revolutionary as they do, you know, because I still think there's some default settings that, sure, no. Yeah, that God doesn't have to, I, I think the work of theology really is trying to learn fine distinctions. And the better the theology mm-hmm. is, the finer the distinctions are. Yeah. Where you can, and you recognize, oh, yeah, I, I needed that distinction. It's subtle. Yes. It's yes. just a suggestion, but it, it's a crucial one. Like one that I've, I've been working with recently is the distinction between force and violence. Mm-hmm. That God can be forceful, yeah. but God is never violent. Wow. In this sense, God never violates me or anyone or anything. Mm-hmm. But there are times in which God can be present in a forceful way. And it, we're, actually, we're, when this came to me was, I was in the airport. I saw a, a young man, probably 20s. I, I think he was autistic, but in some way, he was triggered by the alarm in the airport. Okay. And he started to thrash and... It was pretty clear that he was going to hurt himself or hurt somebody. Mm. And his mother, I assume it was his mother, an older woman who was with him, and she tackled him. Wow. And as long as the alarm was ringing, she was on top of him holding it. Mm. I mean, that's forceful. Yeah. But it's not violent. Yeah, wow. It's it's saving mm. him from violence. Yes, yes. You know, Paul on the road to Damascus, or or this moment with Peter, get behind me. Like, these are forceful moments in some way. But they're not violent. They're right. saving them from, they're being saved from violence. Mm. And I, I think those are the kinds of distinctions we need in order to start to see an image of God that's tr- that's true. That's not simply a reflection of our worst fears yes. or our wishes. Yeah, yeah. Which I think, I always think about Herbert McKay with that, as Eric line about that, decided that, because then so often what God is, is some sort of like wish projection, one direction or the other. Yep. As opposed to yeah, McCabe is great on that. Mm, that's man, that's that's so um, that's so rich. Um, the truth in its fullness is too lively for us. And there's so many of these lines I'd, I'd love to get into. Um, I'm really one of the things I found really moving, and I, again, of course, I think all this moves in the same spirit. But Lent is a season of transfiguration, in part because it makes room for us to be confused allowing us not only to admit our ignorance, but also to appreciate it as a movement towards understanding, or at least towards the kind of misunderstanding that God can use to our good. During Lent, we learn to entertain these awkward angels, those graceful messages that come in the likeness of our enemies. I love that paragraph. Yeah, and I th- connect that to the line you read before, the truth being lively. I mean, I, I think I was taught of the truth, again, not intentionally, well, sometimes intentionally, but mostly Unintentionally, people taught me to think of the truth as something dead and fiat, yeah. Yeah. something absolutely within my control, something I was supposed to control. And I perhaps go back to this too much, but I think we, we live in a culture, regardless of what our religious tradition is, mm. I think just part of being American, quote unquote, is to be conditioned to think that first thoughts are the only thoughts that matter. Right. Yeah. And in fact, I mean, think about it. in everyday English when we say, you're having second thoughts. We mean mm. you're doubting. Well, that's just that's just thinking, right? Sure. Second that's thought right. is the necessary thought to have, you know, a third and a fourth and a fifth thought. Yes, but we're we're conditioned not to think. But yeah. we're conditioned to hold to first thoughts and never to ask, 
how does this first thought relate to this first thought? Mm. And how does this first thought relate to this, this second, third, and fourth mm-hmm. thought? And the truth is somewhat. The truth is lively. Yeah. The truth is always right? And we're, we're never quite catching up to all that the mm. truth has to teach us. And the moment we, I mean, we become fundamentalistic. The moment we think of the truth as something that's under my control, yeah. that I can kind of master, that I can, that I can own, that I can possess. And I think what I'm pointing to here is the gap between a first thought and a second thought is confusion. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. Or my second thought mm-hmm. may be false to that first thought. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, God is teaching. Mm-hmm. God is, I mean, the Spirit is the teacher. And the process, we, we should delight in the process of learning. Yeah. Like, that, that, so much of what has been called deconstruction Right. In the last, you know, five years or 10 years or whatever, it's just growth. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, sure, sure. Yes, yes. Or maturation. It's just learning to think about what it is you mean when you say this or or that. I mean, so much Mm -hmm. of, at least in the circles that I move in, so much of what gets called doubt, it's not doubt. You're just asking a question. That's exactly right. Yeah. (laughs) There's no doubt there. It's not disbelief. Yeah. You're just trying to make sense of what you've been told. And so some of what I'm trying to press there is there is like God is a capable teacher. Yeah. There is. Yeah. I mean, even I'm not sure I'm a capable teacher, but I'm not intimidated by questions in the class. Sure. sure. And if I'm not intimidated by questions in the classroom, yeah. I mean, how much less is God going to be overwhelmed by me throwing a question at him? Well, part of it makes me think Chris, is that, and I know we've had a lot of conversations about this whole sort of deconstruction phenomenon idea. Um, No wonder that feels so taboo and feels like revolt when the idea is that the Christian tradition or the Christian spirituality doesn't make space for it. How different is like for you to say that Lent is space for misunderstanding. Lent is space for confusion. No, no, there's space provided for this. Like, you're supposed to go to this. This is what maturity looks like. This way. As opposed to this, like, you're off the rails or, like, you're off script. No, it's actually in the script, so to speak. Yes, yeah, there's the there's time. time. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's liturgically, it's built in. But I think also, I mean, Scripture is filled with stories. I mean, we're talking here about texts right out of Scripture. Yeah. About prophets and apostles who don't know what the hell they're doing. Right, right. Well, those, I mean, I'm not making that stuff up. Yeah. Those stories are ancient, and they're the stories that Israel and the church mm. have always thought we needed. Mm-hmm. I mean, they could have told those stories any way they wanted, but read the story of Abraham, read the story of Moses, read the story of Elijah. They mostly don't know what they're doing. Yeah, All that's of them, right. Right? Yeah. They're stumbling from one mistake to the next. Yeah. They're getting it wrong, getting it wrong in more or less dramatic ways. And... There's somehow we lost touch with that, even though every page of scripture is about this. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, David, you think about the story of David, right? Like wants to bring the ark up before into Jerusalem to mm. honor God. And it's just, you know, it's, it's a, a carnival. Yeah. One thing I, people die. Right. Of this, right? right. These are the stories that Israel knew we needed to hear. Yeah. And yeah. that's the church when they, when they're telling us the story of, Peter and Paul, I mean, they're telling us stories of, of deeply flawed, yes, bumbling, failing men and women. Mm-hmm. And but how did we lose touch with, yeah, that's just what it looks like. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I haven't published it yet, but I'm writing a piece right now about the saints. 
Mm. And how when we tell the stories of the saints, we tell their stories in their completion. I mean, they're saints, right. they're dead, right? Yeah, their sure. stories are ended. And when you see their lives as a whole and you tell a story about their lives as a whole, it looks like a witness to Jesus, but they're not yeah. lived like that. Right, right. Yes, yes. Like that saints' lives, yeah, that, while they're yeah. living them, mm-hmm. don't have that kind of shine that their stories do wow. once they're finished living them. Wow. And we're, we're inside our stories. Our stories yeah. aren't over yet. Yeah. But then we're disappointed because it feels like we think we should have that kind of shine, that there should be this kind of coherence that really nobody has. Nope. Including <laughs> those people we call saints. Yeah. Right. Um, like when they were li- we would not have recognized them as saints while they were living. Mm. That's good preaching, everybody. I hope everybody's <laughs> hearing this. Yeah, I think it's, it's very powerful. Like this idea that like it's not, it's just not a realistic expectation of life. No. That that the pieces fit together while you're still in the thick of it. I want to, this feels like a good transition because even talking about how in the ways the gospel reflects on the Jewish story and these images that come before, um, how we interpret images from the past and the present and the projected future. I really love what you did with Jesus and the image of the brazen serpent lifted up. Mm. That's very powerful. Um, uh, following their lead, we may say then that Jesus is not only like the brazen serpent lifted up in death so that death might be brought low. He also is like the biting serpents, striking us though we may come alive, wounding us for our healing. Mm. And the truth hurts, we say, and so it does, but it never harms. I'd love for you to speak of that. Yeah, so again, I think that paying attention to that particular point is from, I think it's Gregory Nazianz, mm-hmm. who's point, who points that out. So th- the church fathers are, are much better readers of scripture than we tend to be. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Because of things like this, right? They notice that Jesus is like this and that. Yeah. So yeah. they're not only people of second and third and fourth thoughts. They're also people who can layer first thoughts mm-hmm. together. Right? So it's true that he's like the brass serpent. But there are all the ways in which Jesus can sting. Mm. But again, never violently. Mm-hmm. There's there's going to be force to it. And we know this from experience. I mean, there have been moments, you know, I, I remember moments of clarity when I recognize something that is off in me. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was my first semester at Bible school and mm-hmm. the you know, students are allowed to kind of take part in chapel. And my part the, you know, early that first semester was to, Pray the closing prayer. Mm-hmm. So I'm, you know, 17 years old, 16 or 17, and chapel is ending, and I get up and do my Pentecostal prayer. And in it, I said something to the effect of, you know, God, we're not even worthy to be here, but you, you made room for us. Mm-hmm. And this professor, who I didn't know well yet, said, Hey, would you, would you come by my office later this afternoon? I have a question for you. So I did. I went by, and I, I, I thought he was going to really praise my mm. stage presence, you know, like <laughs> he had recognized the anointing as we say. <laughs> uh, and instead he said, I just have a question for you. He's like, I don't, I don't mean this antagonistically. I just, I want to, I really want to know, do you think that it's true that we're not worthy to be in God's presence? Wow. Do, you, do you really think that? Wow. And it stung. Mm. It stung in part because I was expecting praise. Yeah. But it also stung because I realized I said something that I'd never really considered. I'd never really mm. thought about what it means for me to say. We're not really, that's just church speech that yeah. I grew up on, right? Yeah. So that was a bite. Mm. 
but it healed me. It didn't, it didn't harm me. Yeah. Right. It made me aware. Yeah. And, and here, you know, 30 years later, almost like I carry that bite with me as something precious, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's, mm-hmm. that was a gift he gave me. Yeah. Right. And I, I mean, I've many of those. Oh, and I think all of that is, that's the biting serpent. Like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Like, do you, do you really mm-hmm. mean that? And, and it can come in all, all kinds of ways, right? I mean, it, it doesn't, it's never accusation. It never makes you drop your head. It opens your eyes. Yeah. It, it, it makes you more alive. I love what, I love how that makes too with what you said in terms of the way the saints don't know the arc of their story, the way they're living it. Cause I think in the moment, truth when it comes to us is so threatening. It always, the, our fear of being displaced by it is so profound. When in reality, it's like, oh, there's nothing to fear. Yes. Always what comes out is, integration is wholeness. But in the moment, that, that initial response of, oh, I'm being challenged, I'm being confronted, because we can't imagine that that sting would actually lead towards our healing. Yeah, unfortunately, I think a lot, we, we collapse what happens to us and how we feel about it yeah. with what God is doing right. and how our faith is responding to yeah. it. And like, yeah. this is not easy. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, in my case, it takes a lot of spiritual direction, spiritual directors, a lot sure. of pastoral presence. But I, I have learned this much in my life that what is happening to me is never simply identical with what God is doing. Yeah. And how yeah. I yeah. feel mm-hmm. is never simply identical with what my, how my faith is responding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And once I've kind of learned to make room in myself for, okay, there's a lot of noise in here, Yeah, but that's not, the, that's not really what's going on. Yeah. And that, that seems to me to be, I, I don't know how to survive. Mm-hmm. I didn't have, that sense and have people in my life who can, who can say, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is what God is, is saying. Yeah. I, mean, it's, I feel like it's a through line in what you do. And it's something I feel like I've very much picked up in my own way. In fact, it would probably be one of the reasons I would contend for, at least say this is why for me, faith is so essential is this idea that the idea of having ultimate responsibility to decide what your own story means just seems too great for me. Mm-hmm. Like if, if, if that's all on me to like to make the meaning here, um, to me, there's so much come from this idea that like, no, I really, um, whatever God is, surely is making some kind of a story that's beyond my my understanding right now of like who, how these how, how I'm mashing up these narratives and trying to force some kind of sense out of them, you know? Yeah, and that, that God is so infinitely creative that kind of whatever I do, yeah it remains easily within God's play. You know, yes. like the, yeah. it's, you know, there's that famous exchange, you know, Herbie Hancock says about playing with Miles Davis, like mm-hmm. there are no wrong notes. Yeah. There are no yeah. Wrong notes. Cause the next that. note right. is going to met- set that one. Right. Yeah. I mean, that is, I mean, if, if whatever we mean by God, we're talking about mm-hmm. infinite spirit. Yes. We're talking about that infinite spirit that is embodied in this man, Jesus and his story. So, of of course he's capable right. of finding the next note, right? And that mm-hmm. you know that passage you read earlier about the misunderstandings that can lead to understanding. Yeah, you know, like the he's a great teacher. Mm. So my bad. I mean, think about in the, again in the classroom in the conversations. Sometimes the stupid questions are the ones that open up. That's right. A whole new line of thought because it's it's the questions you're asking that you think you're supposed to ask yeah. that get back tired answers. It's yeah. when you ask the question you're afraid to ask yeah. 
the question that you're not even sure how to ask. Mm-hmm. Now there's new possibility. And that, that to me, I mean, that's, that's what, re- whatever we mean by relating to God, that's, we're na- that's what we're trying to name. I don't even remember where you do this here, but I know somewhere Peter comes up in this way and, and you make this kind of move. And I, that's been such a huge shift for me because I feel like for those of us who grew up in the church, I feel like all the Peter stories, it always becomes like, oh, you know, that Peter, despite the fact that he's such a fumbler and bumbler, he always says the wrong thing. <laughs> like, like, oh, stupid Peter, and yet God loves even him, which now I see so clear, like, in there, it seems to function so opposite. It's more like, oh, no, like, precisely because Peter is willing to risk jumping all the way into these moments. And catastrophic revelation comes out of them precisely because he doesn't hold back. And it's motivated, and this, this is what struck me just recently, is that it's motivated always by a concern for others. So like in the, yeah. in the Transfiguration oh. story proper, mm. right, which, which opens the book. Yeah. They're on the mountain. Jesus is revealed before them. And Peter says, let us build three towers, mm. which again is one of those texts that I've heard all my life as, a, as an occasion to abuse Peter for right. being a fool, Right. He didn't know what he was saying, the text says. But, of course, that cuts both ways. Mm. There was promise in what he was saying he didn't understand. Yeah. The, the, what, what hit me this time, though, was why he spoke up at all. Because the other disciples mm. don't speak. And I, I think Peter speaks because he's overjoyed at the glory. And he recognizes that James and John are overmatched. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And he mm. tried to speak into this space of... Okay, this is glorious, and they're about to be killed by it. Mm. And I'm not going to stand by yeah. while that happens to yeah. me. Right? And, and it's that same instinct that leads him to grasp at Jesus, you're not going to be crucified, mm-hmm. and to strike out in the garden with the sword to protect Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, he often does get it wrong. Sure. But it's, it's coming from this place of he's a friend who wants to protect his friends. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, that cuts in lots of directions. Yeah. A lot of the damage we do, we do out of the best motivation. Absolutely. But we we do need to see, right, that Peter's bumbling yeah. is it's it's bubbling up from this love for God and yeah. for Jesus and for his friends around him. I mean, the reason he jumps out of the boat mm-hmm. to head toward Jesus is that his heart is full to bursting with yeah. I trust this man. Yes, yes. Which now, it's just, uh, this is exploding my brain right now in terms of how much more sense it makes of the Jewish story up to this point. Is that, well, God always likes these people. God, What God always wants is to push back. I mean, that for me was one of the more revelatory things in recent years of Job, is that at the end, yeah. the phrase is that Job is the only one who's spoken rightly of me. Right after God has spent three chapters re- like correcting his theology, utterly rebukes the theology. So, so the information was wrong. And yet it said he's, he's spoken of me. And it seems to be more the idea is that he's spoken right to me. Like, oh, no, well, this is what God wants. is somebody who will go mano a mano, who engages on this sort of heart first. I think that's exactly what the book of Job is doing. So this is staggering to me. I don't know how I had missed it for so long. But you you get, I mean, it's a long book. Yeah. It's a hard book. Yeah. Right. And then at the end, God shows up and it seems to be at least one way of hearing it is this long diatribe. Yeah. Although I heard a great sermon years ago about it's may, it may be more playful. 
class. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. Yeah, someone I know. <laughs> right. uh, which is, I mean, was incredible. It's one of the best mm. things I've heard you say, right? That there's a, we don't know the tone of this. Yeah. yeah. So it, it absolutely could have been friendly and playful. Regardless, mm. Joe does fall on his face and say, I hate myself. I repent in dust and ashes. You know, I've heard of you with a year. Now I see you. Mm-hmm. But, and, and we, and, you know, I don't want to drag John Calvin yet again, but uh-huh. like we end up reading this passage and thinking that that's what God wants. Uh-huh. But notice God doesn't say anything. Yeah. Job does that's that right. whole performance. And it's, it's the only time in scripture that you get anything like a repentance. that's mm-hmm. not immediately met with, do not be afraid. A word of forgiveness mm-hmm. and reconciliation. There's no word spoken. The next thing God says, he says to Job's friends, which is mm-hmm. this man spoke right to me. Yeah. Yeah, he spoke right to me. Yeah, like his theology needs some work, but he spoke to me. Mm-hmm. And you need to go and have him pray for you. I think the point that's happening there is God is saying to Job, "Stop apologizing to me." Yeah, there are people who need to apologize to you. Yeah, that's yeah, absolutely. That's what's happening. Wow, Oof. right? God is not about to take. He's not taking Job's repentance because Job doesn't need to write it. That's right. Yeah, right. I mean, God's point is. He has spoken right to me. Yeah. You're the ones who need to repent. Yeah. And some of what we have to learn here is the, like, Job is groveling, but it's not what God wants. Mm-hmm. And God puts an end to it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I love that. I don't want to realize. I just like, that's, there's so much in all that that's so life giving And even that thing of the playfulness in those texts keeps coming back. And I feel like Job in the Gospels, I read that tone and thing so much now in a way that it just feels more right to me. Almost like this. Now we're both NBA guys. So I'm sorry if like highfalutin theological conversation suddenly becomes sports metaphor, but we love the NBA and we watch inside the NBA. Like you think about like the way that Shaq and Charles Barkley go at each other. And like if if Charles is talking too much to us, the way Shaq would be like, where were you when I won this championship? <laughs> well, now, so help me. When I hear God like, <laughs> I'm like, that's right. where were you? Yeah. Like, when I, like, that's right. It's like, 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 where were you, big man? Like, where's your ring? Yeah. Like, it feels, that feels yeah. much more true to it. Like, that it's the, the, the proximity that's there changes everything. Like, this is not coming from an abstract, you know, sort of uh, hazy presence or something. There's no, that, that, I think that's it. Like, recognizing, the the delight that God takes in his children getting the best of him. Yes. You know, that there's a this deep, deep joy there. And if you think mm. about the moments in our lives, no, that's great. Like when when we feel clearest and cleanest, I mean, I think this is true for everybody. I think yeah. if you think back over your life, there are it's the ability to laugh at yourself without mm. shame. Like when when the joke can be on you. Yeah. But Robert Jensen has this incredible essay about this is the difference between God and the devil. Mm-hmm. And the, he, he says, you know, the devil it has wit, but no humor. Wow. Uh, he's clever. Yeah. But he, he's not good natured. Mm. And so the joke can never be on him. Mm. But God loves it when his children get the best of him. Wow. And that Jen says, like, what is the cross if not the joke being made at God's expense? Ooh. And, but I mean, again, just think about your own scripture aside for a moment. Just think about your own experience. Those moments in which you've done something silly. Yeah. 
and your friends are all laughing with you about it. Mm-hmm. Like the other day, here's a great example of this. Just a couple of days ago, I was trying to illustrate to Chris, Christopher Brewer and I yeah. riding around together. And he had asked me a question. And I was trying to give an illustration about how kind of speaking in tongues has meaning. Mm-hmm. And so we were like serious conversation. I'm trying to think of a way to illustrate it. And kind of one thing has led to another. And I'm trying to think of sounds that have meaning but aren't tied to words. Yeah. Know? Right. So I'm I'm trying to think, what could I say? What would be a good example? So I said, I try to think of the sound of a bus stopping. And I thought, okay, that was that's not gonna work. And then I said, well, or like a, a swing set in the wind. And as soon as I said that, I thought, what an idiotic thing to say. Like first of all, I don't know what that sound is, but I sure sure can't make that sound. And I like we both at the same time like burst into laughter, mocking me. Yeah. And it was pure joy. Mm. Like I'm trying to, I'm mm. the teacher, right? I'm supposed to be mm. illustrating something. And I just taught myself right into some nonsense. Mm. Right? But I recognized it as nonsense. We both yeah. did it at the same time. And we're just laughing, right? Mm. And it's just, it's at my expense. I mean, I've done mm. something silly. But I, I mean, there's nothing to defend there. It's funny. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, and I think that's, I mean, God is pure in that way. Mm. Like, and is pure with us about our, our sameness, mm. right? I think recognizing this about Jesus, he he even in this moment, the get behind me moment. I mean, we don't know what the look in his eye was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There there could have been a twinkle there. Yes. That yes. we don't pick up in the text because we we forget who it is that was saying. Yeah. Yeah. And it does feel like in a way that's not true of almost any kind of other literature. We don't read the cues that are there that would seem to really push us in that direction. It's like it's a kind of a natural that it becomes like this all like very wooden. I don't know. Maybe it may be even for those of us you know who grew up first hearing these in the King James version, we which we uh, think of as formal language. It's not colloquial for us, so it all kind of becomes like this is you know that's a good point. Not how we talk to each other. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, I, I I do think there is for many of us a deeply embedded fear of God. And I wonder if maybe the formality of the language and the, the alienness of it, it is, it yeah. doesn't feel like the speech of, of good, good conversation with friends. Yeah. That may, that may yes. be a serious factor. Yeah. Um, I'd love to do this all night. I don't know how long we've been going. I've not been paying attention to anything. <laughs> I want to make sure though, cause I love this so much. And this would, I, I'd love to take a couple minutes to unpack this. So in the next to last chapter, I'm so interested about everything that happens with this transfiguring repentance chapter. And one of the things I love about that is that, you know, um, <laughs> sometimes I know I drive uh, with a handful of things I have with it. And I drive my editors a little crazy because like um, Matt or Stephanie one, one time said like, but this is more, this is, this is what I do and it's what I love and other people do it. She was like, I felt like I got locked in your sort of Sherlock mind palace for a few minutes there. I love that it's like sermon within a sermon. You talk about what you were going to write, but then decided not to say. Yes. And, and this is so how I think. Like, I feel you working through wanting to say something different about sin, yeah. but realizing even in saying that, the fear of like, oh, well, this feels like stepping into kind of self-righteousness and putting oneself above, yeah. that actually the same thing. So like, I, I love, and I love that you kind of take us through your whole process. Yeah, through all of that. Well, it, I I didn't do this on purpose at first, 
But I started to realize as I was writing it, I'm repenting of what I've said about repentance. Ah, uh, you know, and yeah. I mean, that's when writing or praying or conversation starts mm-hmm. to to really work is when you realize I was unconsciously doing the very thing that I'm trying to address. Right. So that's, I think, how the chapter turned out. Mm-hmm. It was a kind of I'm letting you see me repent of what I was trying to do. Yeah. But I, I do think some of the things I said originally I stand by, you know, yeah, nothing is more sinful than what we say about sin. Except I do love that line. Except for perhaps what we do about it yeah, or try to do about it. I mean, and I, I stand by that. I mean, mm-hmm. I do think that, you know, we have to take sin seriously precisely because of what we say about sin right? Mm-hmm. and what we do to those people we think are sinners. Right. Mm-hmm. So we can never lose that concept, that language of sin precisely because of the self-righteous. Yeah. But I realized that talking in that way without stepping back and mm-hmm. hearing my own voice, it's too close to mm-hmm. the posture of you know, finger wagging rebuke. Yeah. And I, I, I do think there has to be this, a, a bit of winking to it. You have to have mm-hmm. some distance from it mm-hmm. in which the, and, and this is not that, not that easy for, you know, a kid raised in Pentecostalism, which is all about, Earnest. Sure. Right. And I do think there's a place for for being earnest, but you have to kind of always do it ready for the joke to be on you. Yeah. In a good nature. Yeah. So that's some of what Mm. I'm trying to get out there. I mean, I I don't want to, and this is the part of me that is very traditional. Like, I think there's so much wisdom in these texts, these ancient texts. Sure. And in these, in the language that's been given to us, it's just so much of it has been poisoned. Yes, yes. In ways that are false to the text. That's right. False to the tradition. That's right. And so, but still dominant in our experience. Yeah, yeah. I did love that that was kind of, as you said in your earlier graph, I said nothing's more sinful than what we've said about sin, what we've done in the name of our hatred for sin. But I still get it that it's sort of like the, the moment that we kind of enter into that sin is what other people do and not what I'm doing, then you're kind of in it. I tell you what, like, and I'm not trying to make this too, I think we've shared back and forth before um, Jacques Ellul's wonderful section on how the gospel, how Jesus is against moralism. I mean, not like, like against moralism. It's like, it's so, no, that's right. The language is so rigid. I think in good and right ways about it. I, I feel like I've not that I feel like I understand anything. But all the stuff that we continue to experience on a national level and, you know, this terrible murder in Memphis a few weeks ago, like all that stuff continues to push me in more on like why the language of sin is important. But it's so different from this. For those of us who've always labored under this super individualistic, moralistic sense of like whatever, you know, but on the other hand, I feel like I hear people all the time, this kind of sense of like, um, I mean, how many times have heard people say some version of um I didn't. I didn't come over on the Mayflower and oppress anybody. That was like no, like everybody is. Yeah. Everybody is complicit in realities. Is what I love in our, the Confession of Sin every week. Um, some of these things we know about. Some of them we don't know about. Um, and, and that's what we're trying to get at. Not this self-flagellating. You know, that's right. Oh, yeah, man. You're gonna have to. I'm just gonna be talking here. You're gonna have to shut everything down. No, oh, no, wait, please, please, please. This is right where my heart and mind are right at the moment. So first to this point about racism, I I think that one of the reason people are so 
resistant to people in my world. Yeah. People in a lot of the circles that I move in are so resistant to having really discerning conversations and listening. Yeah. When it comes to race, is it's not the guilt. Mm. It's the it's the sense of powerlessness. Oh wow! Yeah. It's the if I acknowledge yes what you're saying on the scale you're naming it yes. I already feel powerless. Right. How much less powerful would I be if that were true? Like that's yeah. nothing I can address. So I think some of it is, and that of course triggers fear. Mm. Like that sense of powerlessness is, you know, it's, it's rooted in what the book of Hebrews calls the fear of death, yes. which is the yes. way in which evil leverages us. Or it's right. If we, if we kind of name that first, that people, people feel powerless yeah. And they're afraid of anything, angered by anything that makes them feel more powerless. Sure. So that, that's one. I think the other, the other side of it is we've talked about sin in such individualistic and moralistic terms. Yeah. What, what I, and, and Lul had a lot to do with this, but coming to realize that moralism is the source of the problem. Not only is right. it in and effective. Right. So sometimes I think there was a point in my life when I would have thought, I would have said, well, moralism it's diagnosing the problem rightly. It's just an ineffective medicine. Yeah, sure. Now I realize, no, it is the disease. Right? Right. Like moralism right. is, is not a bad cure for something yeah. that's wrong. Yeah. It is the thing that has to be cut away from us. Mm-hmm. That that God's holiness is further away from the moral than it is the immoral. Wow. Yeah. And again, that mm-hmm. I mean that Jesus says this over and over again. Yeah. What does he say? The you know, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, these people are going to go into the kingdom of heaven before you do. Yeah. Well, why? Well, because it's easier to get from where you are in immorality to the holiness of God than it is from where those people are in morality right. to the kingdom of God. Right. Like the, I, I absolutely believe mm-hmm. that the more moral we are, the less holy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But those things are incompatible. That's mm-hmm. oil and you know, oil and water. That's, I think, I guess that's the spicy thing I'm going to say. But yeah. but I, but I again, spicy and. I stand by it, right? Jesus was not a moral person. Yeah, yeah. Jesus is holy. Right. But he gets himself killed for a reason. He gets himself accused of being a drunk and gets himself in trouble because of the people he associates with for a reason. Yeah. You know, the the saints are not moral people. Yeah, that's right. Again, prophets die because they're not moral people. They're holy. Yeah, that's right. And the... In, inevitably, the people who are resisting the coming of God mm-hmm. are people who are resisting it in the name of some moral order. Yeah, man, that's it's so true. It's like I don't want to take this in an unhelpful direction. It's, it's <laughs> funny, Dave, because we were just talking about this in terms of like we fallen deep down the rabbit hole of watching the clips on what's the Instagram account? Um, the Christian nightmares. Yeah, the Christian nightmares. It was like it was funny because like how many of them and of course we laugh at it but we you know this is stuff we've all been and done but like how much people directly reference sayings of Jesus the stories of these very prophets and saints that would illustrate the opposite point I mean it's kind of like, like you said I mean uh, by so many standards of conventional morality um, so many of these pagans are, are largely failures but it, I, it really was actually a little overwhelming even though it was so funny to spend like an hour and a half or so, and this is my ADHD brain, and you know, I came here for the funeral and had a little time, like I slept in, I'm watching these things. How many things I heard that was like, wow, this is so much of how I've thought in my life, 
where the way that folks are interpreting these these texts, like, but it's just wow. One of my favorite ones I've heard. I'm sorry, this is this is just having fun here. The kind of thing we would talk about with cameras off. One guy was saying <laughs> there was an amazing clip of this guy preaching against masturbation, and he brings up the Sermon on the Mount, and he says. And it was a Which is funny. Funny. I, mean, I mean, I can already see that's an obvious connection. <laughs> of course, of course. His exact phrase was, you know, like where Jesus says, you know, if you're right out of fence, you play wow. right out of fence. He literally said, all Bible scholars, and he stressed it a second time, all Bible scholars agree that this is about masturbation. I was like, obviously. Obviously. But it was interesting how many things an hour and a half I heard that were like that. It was sort of like, this does not mean what you think it means. I, I have <laughs> to tell the story. And... <laughs> When I was back to Pentecostal Bible School. Oh, I love this story. <laughs> we had a preacher who <laughs> came through and preached against. He, he said, oh, he interrupted his own sermon to say, <laughs> I sense the spirit. It's the, and like he didn't know at first what spirit it was. He had to, mm, to smell it out. Yeah, yeah. It's the spirit of masturbation. Oh. And then he says, he says, we're going we're gonna to do an altar call right now. Everybody bow your head. Close your eyes. And we did. And he made his altar call, and we one guy went forward. So when it's, I mean, they're playing just as I am without one pleading, and one one of us went forward. I mean, I think about that poor young man. Just one guy playing. His summer was just for him. Oh, that's terrible. Talk about earnestness. That's earnest. That's earnest. That was my other favorite thing that I heard day. Actually, was a guy like a prophetic guy. I think I mentioned that in the car, but I got so tickled by it. He was like, in this very prophetic way, he says, like, the Lord's wanting me to tell somebody you've been looking for the keys. They're under the cushion. God says they're under the cushion. And thinking, like, there's somebody. There's got to be somebody. Somebody's keys are devil in the crevice of the cushion. It was like, God gave me a word. He was something like, you know. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry God. to realize that. No, far. no, no, no. I, but, <laughs> I, I don't want to lose that point. I think no, that, yeah. There, that recognition, I was reading today, Origen, early early church theologian. He's talking about sin, actually. Mm. And he said, there's, there's the fire of God and there's the fire of sin in us. And he says, it's like fever. Mm. So he doesn't make this connection. But I think our conversation, what I, what's hitting me now, is that a lot of, if not all, of what we call immorality. Yeah. Is like a fever in a sick body. Mm, wow. It's yes, not the sickness. Yes. Right. It's the sign that your body is fighting the thing that's going to kill you. Wow. Yeah. Moralism is the sickness. Mm. Immorality is the fever. Wow. So, like, I mean, and again, just pay attention to your own life. Think about yeah. the stupid things yeah. you do. And in every case, all of that stupid stuff, I guess, for that poor young man, including masturbation, like all of that stupid stuff <laughs> is because you can't deal with what's real. Yeah. You don't even know what's yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, we, we know this, right? Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. we so much of what we think the way to cure the fever is to give more of that disease. Right. Right. And so the I said this to someone, Dave, and the text for tomorrow actually is that part in, in the lectionary is actually Matthew and the if your hand offend you cut it off. Oh, so what clearly the Lord wants you to use this. <laughs> <laughs> clearly in the spirit here. But I was saying to him. We try to fight the fire. You know, mm -hmm. that's where Jesus says about lust, right? Yeah, you, yeah. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I said, you should not lust. Mm -hmm. We've tried to fight the fire of lust with the water of moralism, mm -hmm. not realizing that that's actually creating yeah. the lust. Yeah, yeah. And so much of the expression of that lust, the fever around it, right, is us trying to 
get control of our own diseased imagination. That's right. Our own diseased desires. And the only thing that deals with the fire of lust is the buyer of love, not the water of lust. Yeah. And that, that to me, again, I mean, I was raised in churches that, that took pride in thinking of themselves as holiness. Yes. But it was, it was moralism and recognizing that that in my world and in every world, moralism is what destroys us. I don't mean to downplay oh, sure. what the fever can do. Of course. No, no, no. But, but it's so what's, what's wild about it is I feel like it's not like, it's not, just, this is not some hot take. Jesus says this so directly. I mean, I feel like this now it seems so clear to me. This is what Jesus is doing with the whole idea of you make double sons of hell. People are worse than yourselves. Because the idea is that, you know, it's, no, you actually make it worse. You actually make it worse. And I feel like we've seen that. That by like by clamping down that way, not only do you not get the result that you want, but it actually creates more even of the very thing that you're preaching against. It, it it only creates it only creates more than that because that pain only produces hiding. That's right. Which just perpetuates the behavior. And again, it's these are not like you know ideas that progressive young preachers are coming up with. I mean, right. this is what Israel's stories, ancient stories, thousands of years old, yes. have told us from the beginning. Right. Just go back and read the first five books of, of Israel scriptures in every case without exception, in every case without exception, when there's something that's wrong that gets yeah. judged, the wrong worsens. Right? Mm, that's so right. That's you right. get, you know, the Sodom and Gomorrah stories is a great example of this, right? In which there's wickedness that's happening in the plain, the fire of God falls, right? The very next thing that happens is lost daughters rape their father. Mm. This kind of unspeakable sin, right? Same thing that happened with Noah, right? Noah, the the earth is filled with wickedness, right? God's done with them all except for Noah. Noah goes onto the ark, comes off the ark. It's just just him and his family. The very first thing that happens is, you know, this horrific sexual violence from his his son. Mm -hmm. And what you're getting in these stories, right, is this, one more to kind of make the point, like Israel rebels against Moses, Korah, and some other elders, You know, say to Moses, listen, we're prophets as well as you. Mm-hmm. And at least in some dramatic confrontation, the earth opens up and swallows some of them. Mm-hmm. Fire comes out from the tent and kills others of them on their feet. And then like five, six verses later, it says in the next morning, the whole camp rebelled. Mm-hmm. The whole camp. Mm-hmm. Right. So like we talk about this fire and brimstone God of judgment, but Israel's yeah. stories tell us over and over and over and over and over again. Even God's judgment doesn't work. Do you think yours will? Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, even fire from heaven doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Do you think you screaming at someone or making a Facebook post will? Right. I mean, it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And it, it actually only deepens and increases the sin, right? That every, and again, scripture tells us this at every turn, Romans, right? Like the, the, the more I fight yes. what's wrong in me, yes. the more strength I give it. Yeah, so, I mean, it, it isn't some new idea. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a very, very old. Idea. I'm glad you said it in vintage Chris Green way that uh, even even God's judgment doesn't work. <laughs> Wait, by the way, retribution doesn't work for God. That's what these stories show us. That's like exactly this, right. so when they have, you know, but yet we still think that oh, I love that so much. How long have we been going? I'm not sure if I want to be sensitive to an hour. Should okay. I've got to ask about this because I love this so much, and I really will. It's funny that we're having such a long conversation on Book of Homily. I know. It's supposed to be short. I know, and it's and it's a fairly that's the, in a good way. It's the uh, accessible one to us. It's, I think it's and really everybody has to read the book. Um, 
I love this section so much. I have to ask about this before we close because it's so good. No matter what we've heard, the passion is not the greatest story ever told, not the last battle between good and evil. It's the unfolding of everyday petty jealousies, religious fervor and political savvy, predictable crowd dynamics, and all too familiar fear of the police, common cruelty, common cowardice, confusion and uncertainty, and most of all, stupidity. I need to talk about that because that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... And Mel Gibson didn't do any of us any favors, right? He he dramatized. I mean, he's a great filmmaker, mm-hmm. but that's the last thing we needed was to see the passion mm-hmm. as this larger than life performance of evil, in which it was pretty yeah. clear we're doing something terrible here, but we're going to do it. Anyway. Yeah, you know, I mean, he literally has right this clearly satanic figure, wicked figure like manipulating people all the way through it. But that's not what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, you read the gospel accounts, there's not a single reference to a demonic spirit or Satan. Right. Like, there's Satan is acting in Judas, but yeah. everything else is just people being people mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. being stupid. You know, Bonifer has that wonderful essay that he, he wrote in prison on stupidity, in which he says stupidity is far more dangerous than, than malice could mm-hmm. be because you can resist evil. Yeah, wow. You can't resist stupidity. <laughs> That's amazing. And he's not being smart at it. I mean, he's yeah. naming that. The one way I've tried to get at this is like the cares of life stupefy us. Mm-hmm. Our anxieties stupefy us. Yeah. And lots of us are living in a stupor because we feel powerless. Mm-hmm. We we like are taking in twenty four hours of cable news. We're getting updates on our phones. We're scrolling social mm-hmm. media. We're, we're cut off from people that are life-giving. We don't have time for prayer and spiritual direction and life-giving conversation. Mm-hmm. And our souls get more and more and more and more stupid. Yeah. Not yeah. in the sense of, again, not as an insult. Sure. Like genuinely being stupefied. And it's in those moments that we do unbelievably cruel mm-hmm. things. And I, that's mm-hmm. what happens to Jesus, right? Yeah. That ev- everybody... It's not obviously an evil thing. They don't know what to make of it. Right, Again, there's, right. a, there's a lot of fear of the police. There's a sense that, well, at this scale, I mean, I hate to see it happening to Jesus, but what can you do? Maybe he shouldn't have charged in and cleansed the temple mm-hmm. like that. Like, what did he think was going to happen talking like that to the authorities? Mm-hmm. You know, like, there were a yeah. lot of really good people who were like we were with Martin Luther King and, yeah. and any other prophet that's yeah. ever arisen. While they're being put to death, what we're thinking is... They should have been more careful. Yeah, that's right. And I think we're never going to be able to confront the real evil in our lives. Mm. The, the evil that's really at work inside of our moralism. Right. Our realism until until we recognize that the story of Jesus being yeah. killed is that story. Ooh. It feels like kind of a disingenuous thing that we say. We like this kind of like, well, I just understand how people can... But in reality, it's like, well, sure we do, because in reality, like, we do it all the time. Yeah. Like, how often are we swept up into the crowd? And as you say, those crowd dynamics just kind of work their way out. And so in a lot of it, I love that you... So yeah, it's that's predictable crowd dynamics. Like, that's right. not what happened there in Jerusalem with Jesus has happened thousands of times today, yes. yes. somewhere in the world. Yes. Like, it happens all the time. And it's not all active. I love that. Like, a lot of us are like, well, you know... What are you going to do? What as opposed to, yeah. I mean, he did push them pretty hard. Or got them. That's right. I mean, there's a, there's something 
I mean, this, this is the, I think evil is always working in two ways at once. Mm-hmm. There's a demonic way in which evil works, which is dark and chaotic and threatens mm-hmm. destruction. And then there's the satanic angel of light way that always comes in to rescue us from the mm-hmm. demonic. Right. And that's where the good people always get caught because what they're afraid of is the fever. What they're afraid of yeah. is the darkness. What they're afraid yeah. of is the demonic. I think of the Legion story, like mm-hmm. Legion, mm-hmm. you know, this is almost certainly a legionnaire, a Roman soldier who's just seen horror mm-hmm. and he's lost his mind. Mm-hmm. And now he's in the graveyards, abandoned far from home. Right. And, but he's safe there. Yeah. The city feels safe with him there yeah. because when Jesus comes and sets him free, that's what scares them. Mm-hmm. Right. So Jesus shows up, yeah. heals this like wow. traumatized man. And it scares the bejesus pun intended out of, these people because they have a false order, mm. a moralistic order. Mm. And the demonic they can make sense of as long as they yeah. keep it outside the gates. Yeah. As, as long as that part of town belongs to those people. You know, this part of the city belongs to those people. These jails, these prisons, these hospitals. Like we have all these ways of we know where to put the demonic. Yeah, that's right. That's right. right. It's the it's the false order that we're yes. protecting. Yes. And it's that false order in which you've got Moral people, good mm. people who are stupefied mm. by their sense of powerlessness. And all they're trying to do is keep the demonic at bay. And they're yeah. they're unwitting about the ways right. and just in that moment they become participants in mm. horrific, horrific evils, mm. including the death of God. Mm. Man. Ooh. Things that are that we've done, things we left undone. That's like the part of the, the the language again, the confession is so helpful. Um Chris, well, I do want to say just, uh, I feel like we should close out. If anybody has any burning questions, I would be happy to take them. Well, can, can I point out what we're doing? Please do, yes. It's kind of burning in my, my head right now. Yes. Hebrews 12. This just hit me a couple days ago. So it's mm. really fresh for me. The There's this passage about striving against sin to the point of blood. Yeah. Like you have not yeah. striven against sin to the point of blood. And I, it hit me the other day. I, oh, and there's a whole passage about God disciplining us and... Mm-hmm. The, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really difficult passage to hear. And I realize why it's difficult. Because we always hear that as, one, I'm supposed to struggle against my sins and conquer them. Uh, right. And if I don't, mm-hmm. God's going to come in and spank me until I get it right. Mm-hmm. God's going to come in and discipline me yeah. until I have the power, the willpower, to conquer my sins. And I realized, first of all, the sins we're struggling against are not Jesus is the one who's arrest, who resists yeah. sin to the point of blood. And it's not his own sins wow. he's resisting. Yeah. That what we need to recognize is the people who shed their blood are prophets and intercessors. Mm. They're not fighting their sin. They're yeah. interceding. That's powerful. On the behalf of people who are being sinned against. Yeah. Our job is not to, like, mm-hmm. the sins that are in my life, mm-hmm. the point is not I've got to learn to master them. It's mm-hmm. I've got to see the ways you're being sinned against mm. and resist that wow. for your sake. And that will deal with whatever is diseased in me. Yeah. The fever will break in me mm. when I care more about what happens to you than I do my own moral cleanness. Man. Right? That's the first thing. And that what Jesus is doing is training us for that. Mm-hmm. He's not training me so I'll be more moral. Jesus mm-hmm. is not sweating my sin. Yeah. Yeah. What he wants is for me to intercede for the people that are being sinned against. Mm-hmm. And when I recognize, I mean, that's, that's the life that he's called us all to. Mm-hmm. Your good matters more than my being good. Wow. And that's once that 
Once that's realized, then moralism is broken yeah. and holiness becomes possible. Ooh, yeah. Man, that's so good, Chris. Love that. Uh, I'm so grateful for this conversation. I'm so grateful for the book. What a gift this is to the church and to the world. And and uh, and for me, still such revolutionary ways of thinking about holiness and... Um, and I, I don't know. It's just sort of like, it, it is a Lent book, but it feels so much bigger than a Lent book. It's like, this is this is a book about God, life, all the big ideas. I just, I want everybody to to read. Being Transfigured, Lenten Homilies, Chris Green. Amazon, is that the best way people get this? Yes. And how do people want to connect with your work further? Yeah, I mean, they can go to my website, which is just C-E-W Green, or to the Substack, which is cewgreen.substack. I'm on Instagram too. I'm not on Twitter anymore. I had a, that overwhelmed me at, at some point, but yeah, easy enough to, to find. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for this conversation, my friend. This has been a beautiful, amazing. I'm so glad. I always feel like any conversation we have should be. I, I wish I would have recorded because I wish I could revisit it. So I'm just a little spoiled just to get to do this and get to share it with our friends. So thanks so much for doing this, and thank you all for joining us wherever you are.